He's got a beautiful back Dad, oh, he got all of that one. Oh, my gosh. That is amazing. Lay up with an iron into the hazard. Well, that wasn't quite what I meant, you know. What's good, everybody? Welcome into the 73rd Hole Podcast, the official podcast of Golf Oklahoma. And boys, it was an amazing weekend of golf. Taylor Williams and Jim Wood were joining me today. Sam Humphreys here with you. Colby Powell had a last second thing to get to, so he's not here, but he will have his thoughts on the show. And guys, I mean, it was an unbelievable day of golf. We had Scotty Scheffler get off to the hot start. We had, obviously, in the middle, Will Zalatoris take a two-shot lead at one time. Um, And then Fitzpatrick gets the job done at the end. I don't know where you guys want to start, but T-Dub, I'm curious to get your thoughts since we weren't able to talk on the radio show yesterday. Mr. Skill is your U.S. Open champion, Matthew Fitzpatrick. Yeah, you know, guys, it's it's very interesting because we have guys who haven't been able to uh, win over in the United States. Well, Fitzpatrick was one of those guys where he hadn't been able to get over the hump at all. And the fact that he's able to do it at a major championship on the course that he won the U.S. and that, he joins Jack Nicklaus as the only two players to have done that. Uh, Jack did it at Pebble Beach winning the U.S. and the U.S. Open on the same same course. And Fitzpatrick did the exact same thing at Brookline. And, you know, number one thing I took out of yesterday's round, guys, was he had 17 of 18 greens. I mean, that's just one of the best ball striking rounds you'll ever see. In the final round of a major championship yesterday, guys, he gained 2.63 strokes approach to green. And he actually gained 1.39 off the tee, which is something that for Fitzpatrick, he's known for hitting fairways. But he was actually hitting some balls out there, guys. And, you know, we, we make fun of him because he said that, um, you know, like with Bryson, hitting the ball a long way isn't a skill. But to prove that he did a lot of the similar things that Bryson did, it's not to the same extent of gaining distance. And he didn't lose his um, didn't lose his, uh, his game while he was trying to gain that distance. So, He's become such a, a great player. Now he's a top 10 player in the world now, Woody. And I don't know. I, I don't think this is the end for Matthew Fitzpatrick on wins. I think that he's probably going to get at least a couple more tour wins and potentially another major or two down the road. Well, his skill level is, uh, it speaks for itself. If you watched that yesterday, like all of us did, that, 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 that ball striking was unbelievable. But with any U.S. Open, with any golf terms, you got to get the right break. And 15 was turning point to me when he blocked that golf ball pretty far right but he blocked it perfectly he was even smiling after he hit the tee shot because i think he knew it was going to be over there in that beat down grass zalatoris just just missed the fairway i mean it wasn't that wide but had no shot um fitzpatrick wide really wide open off a good lie knocks it on the green which was a phenomenal shot that makes that putt zalatoris makes boogie so it turned and to me, that turned it right there, and that was a hell of a break. He got a great break on 18, that that ball was just far enough left of that tongue of that lip of that bunker where he could hit a good shot. Now, he's still got to hit the shot. I'm not I'm not knocking the fact that he got a little lucky because he still had to hit quality golf shots to win the golf tournament. But those were two huge breaks that could have gone either way, and they went both on his side. That's why he's hoisting that trophy. You're exactly right, Woody. I was going to bring that up at some point in the show, that 15 is where I really thought that Fitzpatrick won the golf tournament as well. I mean, obviously, you know, you have to get certain breaks to win a U.S. Open or any tournament for that matter, but Fitzpatrick really did get some yesterday, but 
you know, that shot on 18, guys, I'm curious, where do you think that ranks in the history of great shots at major championships? Because, I mean, we've seen how tough that bunker is. Obviously, he was in a little different place in the bunker than John Rahm was on Saturday. Um, but for him to really just focus on striking that ball perfectly, starting it left of the lip with quite a bit of cut on it and put it up there to a place where it was a pretty easy two-putt, I mean, that has to rank in the top, 20 great shots of all time in the history of the U.S. Open, at least, maybe even major championships, right, T-Dub? I'm definitely putting it up there on my list, Sam, for sure. Um, I think, though, I, I think that whenever you talk about like the history of the game and the shots that people remember, I think that that's one of those shots where the average person watching it doesn't understand how hard it is. Yeah. Um, you know, us obviously being players and have seen it, we understand the difficulty of that and the moment of the shot, which makes it so extreme. So I, I, I completely agree with you, Sam. I think it's going to be one, one of the best shots up there. And, you know, maybe maybe just per se, let's say Zalatoris made his putt or someone else got up to 600 and there was a playoff. I honestly think that that shot may be a little bit more remembered, even though he did solidify a one-shot victory. I think if there was a little bit extra on top of it, I think, or let's say Fitzpatrick makes his putt on top of it to go to 700 and not give Zalatoris a chance, I think that would have made it even better, but yeah, just the circumstances of it and the drama of Zalatoris coming down the stretch because, you know, we, we talked about his putting so much and obviously that, that's been his hindrance on the non-major tournaments, but the guy Zalatoris in every single major so far this year has gained more than one and a half strokes on the green. So I, I don't know what he's doing leading into weeks to try to get his putter working, but it's good. And he hit, he had a lot of putts on the back nine. They either went in or they, they scared the hole. And I don't know. I don't know what he was. What difference do you see in Zalatoris' stroke from a regular tournament to a major championship? Because, like, obviously, I don't want to get off Fitzpatrick too much, but just getting on that side, what are you seeing technically-wise from Zalatoris' different putting in majors compared to regular tournaments? Keep something in mind. Majors are just a different cat. Par, it's good in a major. <clears throat> it takes away a lot of pressure, I think, on Zalatoris because he doesn't think it has to be a birdie fest. He doesn't have to make all those putts that he does say to win another golf tournament. Uh, when it's pars good, Zalatoris is going to be scary because he's a great lag putter. The only, the only worries we have, guys, when he gets inside five feet. If the putter can go back, you know, any more than eight inches, he's pretty good. It's just those little ones that will scare the dog out of you when you watch him. And if you look down the stretch, he did not leave himself very many of those that would scare him or scare us watching. Mm -hmm. So I don't think his stroke has really changed, Taylor. I don't. I think it's the same it always is. But when he has a little longer putt, his stroke's pretty good. And when par is good, well, you better – I mean, I – I thought it might have been a flash in the pan when he finished second at the Masters, but now he's finished second at the PGA and second at the U.S. Open. Uh, you can call me stupid for a little while, but you can't call me stupid forever. I'm starting to believe this guy's pretty damn good. Yeah, I totally agree. I think he's if not the best ball striker on tour, at least top five on tour, ball striking-wise. But it was the driver that kind of let him down, obviously, after he got the birdie on 11, hits it right on 12, and we talked about the one right on 15. So it was the driver that kind of let Zalatoris down a little bit. And then, 
You know, guys, to me, even though it wasn't a yippy stroke, I thought the one on 17 was kind of the tentative stroke we were waiting to see from Zalatoris. Um, you know, to have a 15-footer straight up the hill and to leave it short, I, I mean, you have to give that ball a run at least, but he did hit a lot of good putts. The one at 18 was an exceptional putt. I thought that it was in five feet out, but... You know, to me, guys, the tentative stroke was on 17, and you're right, Woody. He didn't have many, you know, four- to six-foot putts that we could have seen that little yippy stroke, and we did see it a couple times, and he kind of made them, right, and, and from really close. But, you know, guys, T-Dub, give me your thoughts on that putt on 17. I thought that that's where he really could have taken advantage, and he didn't. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you, Sam. I think that that was an opportunity for him to make that putt. You know, Rory had a similar putt on those same lines, and he, he left it low as well, so don't know what it was about that line. Adam Hadwin came in between those two groups and actually made very similar putts. That was a very common spot because of where the, the slope laid, and everyone's kind of hitting it. Like, Rory kind of just one-hop shot, but Zalatoris threw it all the way to the back of the green, spun it back off, uh, used the slope definitely. But, you know, guys, I think one of the things I want to give uh, Fitzpatrick credit for in particular was what he did after the 11th hole, because you got to think about this. They put it in there tight, right? So um, I believe it was Fitzpatrick who put it first, and he put it to pass. Zalatoris makes it, then um, Fitzpatrick misses his bogey putt. So they're essentially in the same spot on the same little short par three. And Zalatoris walked, and they're tied at the time. So Zalatoris walked off with a birdie to get a two-shot lead over Fitzpatrick's uh, three-putt bogey. But then after that, guys, for um, for um, for Fitzpatrick to come back and make that long bomb on um, on 13, they, they had mentioned that the longest putt he had made all year was like 44 inches or, or 44 feet or something like that. And um, and that putt was over 50 feet. So that was really exceptional. Then you had the 14th hole, guys, where I thought Zalatoris also had a chance to make a little putt. But he ended up missing that. To, I don't know what was it, a 10-footer or something like that um, for par 14. But, guys, you know, when I look back on Zalatoris, we've already made a lot about 15. But 16 it, it was the hole that I knew Zalatoris was going to be around for a long time because I saw everyone on that hole, Woody. They had such a hard time getting that, hole, that their ball back to that back mm-hmm. flag on that 10-yard par 3. And Zalatoris just lands it right where he needs to, hits it up to, uh, what, a few feet or whatever it was, and made an exceptional putt from yep. there. So, I don't know. That, that that just shows. We talk about his putting and how he can hold him back. But he's not just an elite ball striker. He's – like, he's, he made – him and Morikawa are up there, one, two, and three, somewhere in that area. But it's just so elite, Woody. It's just – that's going to be able to carry him, even if those short putts aren't going in. Great point on 16. Nobody was making two on 16. Nobody. And he had – those earlier chances in that round, I thought, well, he he's let it get away. But when he whistled that six iron in there, just over that bunker, he actually got that golf ball to the right short of that pin. Which, let me tell you something, that takes some cannonies now to to <laughs> fire that ball. But I think at that point, he knew he had to make something happen, guys. It was. And, and and we we haven't even talked about Scheffler. Scheffler was right there, gentlemen. Yes, he was. He was. Right there. <laughs> I mean, just a little break here, a little break there, and Scotty Scheffler wins this golf tournament. So, and could you? The only drawback to that U.S. Open that I saw was all the commercials. And shame <laughs> on the USGA for being that greedy that they they just loaded that thing with commercials. Uh, you know, Mike Wong that they they. They, the last hour was commercial free, and it might have been. By then, I was so pumped up, I didn't care. Uh, but if you look at that open coming down the stretch, that's one of the best opens we've had in a while. That that really was spectacular golf. 
on a golf course where everybody was saying, well, I'm not sure about this golf course. Well, talk to me, boys. How good was that golf course? You had a par three that was a sand wedge that they were bogeying and doubling. You had par fours that were over 500 yards that were brutally hard. You had par fives that were reachable in two, but if you don't get on the green in two, that didn't look like a lot of fun. You ever seen too many chili dips in all your life on number eight? So, <laughs> if you look at that golf course, does it get any better than that? I don't think it does. No, I, I think, think you're that's exactly one of the right. Finest golf courses they get, they've ever played in Open. I, I think you're right. I think that Brookline will definitely get another U.S. Open after the showing it had this week because you had times during that, it, it, even in the final round yesterday. I mean, Zalatoris went four under while Scheffler and Fitzpatrick went two over at one point, guys. And and we had big swings like any time anyone got in the lead from Thursday and through Saturday. You know, they, they kind of faltered like John Rahm, and, and we saw it from many other guys. And, and, I, and I loved the fact that it brought the whole field into the golf tournament. And it's ironic that Fitzpatrick goes on to win. We call him Mr. Skill. But, guys, I mean, Fitzpatrick has gotten better off the tee, so it really does test all facets of your game. Um, and, guys, like, let's go back to that little stretch. Um, and, and, Woody, I'll start with you. I'm curious to get your thoughts on what you saw from Scheffler, um, maybe from the front nine where he goes out in 31 to the start of that back nine, because it's really tough to pinpoint where Scotty Scheffler lost the golf tournament. I would probably tend to say that it was on Saturday during that kind of same stretch of the golf course, but he did bogey 10 and 11 again yesterday. Um, so what did you see from Scheffler in that stretch of holes on Saturday and Sunday that probably lost him the golf tournament? Well, you're, I think Saturday lost him the golf tournament. That's just my two cents. Uh, and where did he lose it? Where did it start going to be a train wreck that 11th hole? It's a sand wedge. And where does he miss it? Long. Where can you not miss it? Long. So he makes double there. And that just started that train because he was on a roll. When he made that eagle on eight, I was thinking, uh-oh, <laughs> this is going to be fun. This guy's going to run off and leave the field. And then that back nine had his number. 10 and 11, he struggled on 10 and 11. Not just on Saturday and Sunday. He didn't really play him that good any day. So... And then he'd get off to those bad starts on that back nine, and he couldn't right the ship. And, and mind you, it's not like those are easy holes. I mean, but that was what was so much fun watching that golf tournament. The, the par three was only 110 yards. Uh, you know, I mean, he had to take 110 yards, the best player in the world. Uh, what? You know, and, <laughs> and a driving on those those first starts of that back nine has to be precise. You, you really needed the ball in the fairway. Scheffler wasn't getting his ball in the fairway, so he kept putting himself behind the eight ball. So I think you're spot on with Scotty. I think he lost it on Saturday. He didn't help himself on Sunday either because he, he just couldn't play that back nine very good. You agree with that? Yeah, too, you know. Yep. Go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, you know, Scheffler yesterday plays 400 through the first six holes, right? And then he's got himself in position, but, but the 10th hole, guys, you know, he put it in that greenside bunker, then hit it out to, what, 12 or 13 feet or whatever, really didn't hit a very good putt there. And then the three putt on eleven, missing a five footer, which is something that I, mean, I, I wouldn't have bet. Scotty, if I had if I had to pick someone to make a five footer on the back nine of a major championship, Scotty Scheffler would be in the top three of my list. So that was a very shocking uh, putt for me to see him miss that. But you know, we, we mentioned that uh, you know Rory and, and Zalatoris earlier not being able to birdie um, seventeen. Well, uh, you know, uh, he was able to hit it in there pretty close on seventeen and made 
a, a good putt there. So, I don't know, guys. I do agree with y'all that, that Saturday was definitely a downfall. And Saturday was a downfall for many people. Um, Morikawa and Rory in particular, you know, they end up losing by um, – they both lost by four, respectively. And, and on Saturday, Morikawa shot 77 and Rory shot 73. So, definitely uh, definitely bad day for them. But, you know, also, too, guys, we keep talking about Scheffler. You know, he had a 23-footer on 18 to uh, to get in the playoff. And he, he had a fairly decent putt there. thought he might have had a chance, but um, – didn't go in. So, definitely not the end for Scotty Scheffler. And I made this point uh, yesterday, guys. Uh, two more points about uh, Scheffler. One is that he might set a record in uh, FedEx points one in a season because he's on some immaculate run right now. It's not even funny. And I want people to remember, you know, these rankings started in 2007, I believe. So, this was, or 2008. So, this was after the, the Tiger dominant type there. Maybe Tiger in 2007 will, would have a little bit higher stance. But Scheffler's uh, role FedEx points are getting to an astronomical mark. And then, you know, before I throw it back to you, Sam, a point about uh, the Country Club being one of the best uh, best open courses. I think that, you know, I'm, I, I kind of mentioned this yesterday in our group text. I think that the fact that they've had how many ever majors and Ryder Cups and stuff at the Country Club and they haven't played the same hole layout any time is what kind of has not made it so great. Because you get up there and even you, we played it previously, 99 at Ryder Cup, we don't even know what holes are which because they're using <laughs> different ones. So. Right. I definitely think that they need to – I 100% agree that they will get another U.S. Open, but they have to keep it the way that it was this year, guys, because I agree that it ended up being immaculate. Gil Hans restoration seemed to me to do an excellent job. There. Does it bother you guys all the blind shots on this golf course at all? You know, to, to me, it, it's one of those things to where if I'm designing a golf course, I wouldn't do it. It's actually funny. Um, Alistair McKenzie, one of the – probably the most famous course architect of all time, had, I believe it was nine or ten rules or something like that. And one of the rules was do not make any blind tee shots. So it's uh, it's pretty funny that there's just different ways to go about designing the course. And like I said, there are ways to implement the blind tee shots and the blind approach shots. I think there's a place for it. That, would it be better if there's maybe one or two less? Probably so. But but whenever you're dealing with the U.S. Open, there's so many things that could be you uh, you know added on and unique, that kind of thing. So I don't know what he generally the blind tee shots with and approach shots would bother me some, but for a U.S. Open and maybe a once a decade tournament, it doesn't one bit. Well, the the one thing about those blind shots at Brookline, they are blind, but they have a great target in the distance for the player to aim at. Okay, so I don't mind a blind shot as long as you have something that you can focus in on to get your line. It totally blind is a little bit brutally hard, uh, but what that tells you is how good these guys are with, first off, their aiming points, because they are picking something in a distance and getting lined up pretty good to it. The, the other thing that it shows me is how good they are with their distance control of their irons. They don't see the green. They don't see the pin, but they have a number. And they have a target line where they know that green is or that pin is that they're trying to hit that golf ball to. Then they're just basing it on how good a pros they are that they know they hit an eight iron, 170 yards or whatever it is. That doesn't bother them that they can't see the target anymore. The average golfer, that's tough because they want that perception. They want their eyes to see where they're going. And when you have a totally blind shot, usually their swings don't come out quite as good that's why they don't have a name on their bag and they don't do that for a living 
Yeah, I, I totally agree. I like I tend to like, you know, courses that don't have as many blind shots, but you you guys are right. I mean, look at the leaderboard we had. We have Fitzpatrick, Scheffler, Zalatoris, Matsuyama, Morikawa, McElroy. I mean, I was talking all week about how this course wasn't necessarily separating as far as score goes, but as far as big names go and who was playing the best that week, I think it really did separate. So I, I would not mind one bit to see another U.S. Open at the Country Club at Brookline. Guys, one guy that we haven't talked about that could have made a little more noise if he didn't chunk one on set. 17 was Matsuyama. Matsuyama goes out and shoots five under yesterday, guys, and gains 4.57 shots on the field in round four on the greens. And so Matsuyama could have made things even a little bit more interesting. What did you see from Matsuyama yesterday, T-Dub? I, I, was, I was one of those guys down the stretch, Sam. I, I was actually rooting for Matsuyama to get in post the score to, uh, to get a little bit of excitement. You know, he was uh, like you said, five under on the day. Bogey free. Might as well throw that in there as well in the final round of a U.S. Open. Very few people have probably uh, ever done that. But uh, Sam, you're exactly right because we see him in the middle of 17 fairway, and we've seen what what people, what the shots of people have hit. Even up to that point, he's one of the the kind of middle of the pack groups out there, but still been able to see great shots come in. And what does he do? He just completely lays the thought over. I mean, hit. It, it wasn't quite a, a more coward chunk from from the day before. But, but it was not too far off because this was a little 100-yard shot, and it went maybe 85 yards. I, I, you could definitely tell the nerves were there as well, and then he 100%. hit it a little bit right on 18, almost absolutely killed someone, uh, hit him in the head. So <laughs> I, I think that, you know, once you, it's kind of like Rory. Once you get into contention and you know that you have a chance, the nerves kind of come up and spark on a little bit. So I was definitely rooting for Hideki, but I do think that the nerves kind of came in, and he was going to finish about where he did at the, in the number uh, fourth-place finish. <laughs> But I do think if he could have gotten the four under, I still don't think he would have won. But definitely could have got some more pressure on those guys. And definitely would have put pressure on if he got the five under. And Woody, I was just going to say right there, why did we see so many guys fatting shots off these tight lies coming from uh, a teacher? I mean, why do guys do that, even the greatest players in the world? Well, Tim, it's a great question because I'm sure people were going, well, I can do that. I've, I've chillied him all my life. So... What you had on those really tight fairways is they couldn't get enough bounce on the club to actually use the bounce to get under the golf ball. So what they had to do is they had to just absolutely nip it, which is, boy, just a little bit of lean on your shaft to get that shot. It's got to be so precise. And when you put a little lean on those shots, instead of using bounce, which is very forgiving, it is a very, very fine line, and that is why you kept seeing those chunks is those guys would try to lean that calf just enough to get a really what we call that nip, and if they didn't do it, then guess what? The, the front end of the golf club, the sandwich, will dig in just a little too much. It just is a little bit steep, and if they don't do it just right, well, we got you a big old steaming bowl of Wolf Brand chili. You didn't see him blade him, but you did see him chili him a lot. Yeah, and you know what happens when you chunk a shot? You got to get your Groove It brush out and you got to clean your club. Grooveitbrush.com, promo code 73rd hole. The best 
club cleaner in the history of club cleaners. They will get you taken care of and get you a great, great club cleaner at GrooveItBrush.com, promo code 73rd hole. And guys, I want to get to our biggest disappointments of this U.S. Open because mine is fairly obvious. John Rahm goes out there and shoots four over in a tournament that he had in the palm of his hand on Saturday, especially when he was standing on 18T on Saturday. But even... You know, Sunday, guys, I I favored him to win the golf tournament. Colby asked me the question, would you take Fitzpatrick uh, and Zalatoris or the field? And I said, obviously, I'm going to take the field because then I would get Scheffler and Rom. And it turned out to be I was exactly wrong in, in taking that. But to me... You know, John Rahm just didn't have it at all this week. And, and, you know, the first three rounds, it was the ball striking. And then in round four, he almost lost three shots on the field. Uh, strokes game putting. Uh, but T-Dub, he continues to kind of disappoint, even though I think he is the most talented player in the world. I mean, I think just that at some point, guys, it's that, it's that temper. Because I even saw Southern Hills, it's just, oh, how much can you put up with for a 72-hole event when every single stroke matters so much? So. I definitely think that's something that is gonna he's gonna have to keep relying on it. Like you said, four over yesterday, Sam. Didn't expect to see that at all. Um, as far as my biggest disappointment, I gotta go with my one and done pick, Justin Thomas. I mean, seven over, shoots sixty nine the first round, puts himself in, in great position, comes out and doubles the first hole on Friday, actually it's three over through two holes, ends up able to get it back, put himself in a decent position, but comes out and doesn't play very good on Saturday and doesn't play very good on Sunday. So uh, if I had to throw him, and, you know, he ended up tying with guys like Keith, uh, Justin Rose, Joseph Graham went down at seven over. So, I don't know, Woody, I'm going to throw Justin Thomas in my in my biggest disappointment. But I'm surprised Sam didn't go with his boy Victor Hovland as the biggest disappointment, going 70-77. Well, I, I talked about that yesterday. I was more talking about Sunday. But, yeah, Victor, I mean, what, what was that, Javi? Come on, you got to save me a little bit. <laughs> well, if I had a disappointment with Burns on Sunday besides Rob. Rob, I think I think T.W. smart on with those, with that temper because let me just tell you, you guys have gotten mad in your day. Oh, yeah. And that changes, that, that changes your heartbeat. And in a U.S. Open, you, only want, you really want to be flatlined. You don't want ups and downs. And, and boy, I'll tell you what, Rom has got to learn to control that uh, in a big way. But he he folded, but I was really disappointed in Sam Burns that last day shooting, what did he shoot, 77, I think. And and that was that was unexpected. I, he had played so good, and I thought maybe, just maybe, he was going to sneak up that leaderboard on Sunday and kind of get into contention. And, boy, he went the other way quickly. Yeah, he did. And one more disappointment. I know the home fans were disappointed that Keegan Bradley uh, only shot one over on Sunday, finished one under, tied for seventh for the golf tournament. But, you know, he gains 3.91 shots, strokes gained approach in round four, but loses 2.67 on the greens, T-Dub. The putting finally caught up with Keegan Bradley, right? And, you know, that's a, that's a common trend, you know, where it, you, you, can, you can usually get through two – Probably more, you know, three rounds of a tournament was getting by with something you're a weakness at. That's one of the reasons why Zalatoris in the majors has been so surprising to me is because you would think that maybe just one round that it would just completely go to shit, and it just doesn't. And that's what happened with King and Bradley. Unfortunately, like you mentioned, that the, the putter just wasn't there. And how cool would that have been for, for the Boston crowd 
to have that. They probably need a little bit of spark after the Boston Celtics got their ass kicked it's a tough uh, by the Warriors. So <laughs> the Red Sox <laughs> lost too. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's and, and you know those Boston lost. fans, guys. They're very, very passionate people. Very passionate people. So they uh, they definitely needed to, some things to go their way. But you know, one real quick thing also about about the guy who led a lot of the tournament the first two days, Colin Morikawa. And I want y'all's opinion on this because I think it's very, very important. He talked about after his Thursday press conference, and he talked about this even a little bit before, you know, even after Southern Hills, that, you know, he's played a fade his whole life, essentially, or, or since his freshman year of high school, he said. And, and fade, 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 fade. Well, now all of a sudden, he's gotten to a point to where all he can end is draw. He's hitting a draw. And I knew that when I heard that, that he wasn't going to be able to do that for all four days. He's not going to be able to aim at the spots he needs to, being able to commit to a draw when he's so used to a fade. So, Woody, how, how important is that for a player, being able to visualize the shot working one way or another? Because like, you're fading at three yards compared to drawing at three yards. That's a six-yard difference. And at a U.S. Open, that's extremely, extremely important. I mean, what are your thoughts on someone who's faded the ball that long then having to go to the draw and getting their eye to adjust to that new ball flight? Well, he, he, obviously he couldn't because he had such a rough Saturday. Uh, I don't understand why he lost his fade or what, what caused him to lose the fade. I will give him credit, though. You know, they got they always had that saying, you got to go with what you brought or bring your what you got. And that's what he had. And he tried his little fanny off to, to pull it off. But at a U.S. Open, it better be spot on because you're landing a golf ball. Like you said, that six yards is huge because where they're trying to land golf balls, is only in about a 10-foot, 20-foot area. So that's more than six yards, pretty much. It's close, but it's, it's more than six yards. So I give him a lot of credit for trying to just play what he had, but he needs to go back to getting his fade back. And I don't know, it can't be that hard. World-class player like that, he'll get his fade back. But he was not a guy I was looking forward to saying he's going to move up that leaderboard, even though he played a really good round on Saturday. I just didn't. I just didn't really think he was going to be able to do it. I really didn't. All right, Sunday is, is where he played a pretty good right. round. Saturday where he had that really bad day. So uh, you know, I don't know. I just I think that when you're talking about guys like that that are so good, I'm really shocked that he he didn't trust his fade, but he didn't. So, and that's why he's probably not hosting that trophy. I agree, but at the same time, the only guy that hit the ball better on Sunday uh, was Matthew Fitzpatrick. I mean, Colin Morikawa almost gained four shots on the field, strokes gained approach. Uh, to me, it still comes down to around the green with Colin Morikawa. You know, on Sunday, lost .63 over half a shot, and on the tournament, uh, only gained .45 around the green. And so, to me, Colin Morikawa, there's a lot of positives to take uh, from this golf tournament. And, you know, I know he was a big favorite at the PGA. He was one of the favorites this week. I still consider him one of the favorites at the British Open. And we'll get to that later in the show. We'll get to our British Open early favorites. Um, But first, I do want to say to anyone in Oklahoma City who needs any dental work done to their teeth, go visit our friends at Ring Family Dentistry. I know them personally. Doctors Phil and Brennan Ring will get you taken care of. They are the best in the business. Same-day orthodontics, same-day clear liner orthodontics. 
uh, and anything you need to help you smile better, T-Dub. And you know who was smiling was Matthew Fitzpatrick. Is he the first ever major winner to have braces, T-Dub? I, I think so. I mean, can, can you imagine? Just let's just go back and look at every single uh, picture of the Winter Horseman Trophy <laughs> and see if we, if we can spot the braces, man. And, and you know, I, I made this point when I first saw saw my man Fitzpatrick with the braces. Like, I'm never going to discredit someone for for trying to better themselves and how they look. But when you're a multi-time winner on the DP World Tour and a world-class player, can't we invest in a little Invisalign or something? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, mean I, just, I, don't know, I think we're at that point, Woody, to where we could we could probably make it look a little better. But, hey, if you're going to hoist the uh, the, the uh, U.S. Open trophy and get the, what was it, $3 million check or whatever they bumped it up to, yeah. I think you can look however the hell you want to look. Well, I've always said that the women in Europe aren't very pretty, but the teeth in Europe are even worse than the women are as far as ugly goes. Uh, <laughs> there's not a lot of people in Europe that have great teeth. I'm not sure. They need a ring family dentist over there because let me tell you something. I, I've, been to, I've been to Europe a number of times, Scotland, a lot, and uh, there's some ugly teeth over there. So good for Matthew. And, and the fact that he can find an orthodontist over there to put braces on, I'm duly impressed. I mean, the uh, the rest of the country needs to figure out who his orthodontist is. Absolutely, guys. And during the round yesterday, we had shockwaves on Twitter. Speaking of braces, let's talk about knee braces and ankle braces and leg sleeves. Tiger was seen without a leg sleeve at a junior tournament. I'm sure Charlie was playing in this junior tournament, and he took a picture with one of these kids, and it leaks on Twitter and guys, his leg is like concave on the inside of that leg. And and guys, I mean, it looks like he doesn't even have a calf muscle. He has more made cuts this year than he has calf muscles. How did he do it, guys? I mean, the leg looks horrible. I mean, Sam, when when you sent when you sent that picture, whoever in our group texted it, and I looked at it, I said, "My God!" Because that was the first thing I saw. I said. Where's where's the leg sleeve? Where is it? So, and to me, I was thinking it might have been an old picture. And but all you have to do is zoom in, and you realize that's not an old picture at all. It's uh, it's very very recent. And I, it, you know, it, it, it what what it does is, is that even the angle, like you can see it. It's not as, it's not like close up or anything like that. But it's it's enough to tell that it's a it's a freaking miracle that this guy's even able to walk, let alone play elite golf. He, like you said, Sam, he's played at two majors and played two tournaments, and he's made both cuts which is something that very, very few people have done. And it, 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 so for, for me, the two things I, I took from that are, one, the fact that he's, he feels comfortable enough to not wear the leg sleeve it is, is a good thing because you had to have known. He, he knows that as soon as he doesn't wear that, people see what it looks like. People are going to critique and analyze it. They're probably gonna, more people are probably analyzing the leg more than they did Matthew Fitzpatrick's game yesterday. So <laughs> it goes to show you know who moves the needle like we talked about. But it's also a good sign that he's out there you know, obviously watching Charlie play and all that, but it seems like from what everyone's saying that he's been able to move around a lot better than he was, which, you know, Woody, after we watched him at Southern Hills, I saw him limping, essentially limping the last two and a half days that we were up there, maybe even close to the whole tournament, but it definitely got worse Friday and Saturday. It's a good warm sign that he may be getting his game ready for St. Andrews, and it's a good sign he's able to keep walking, and it hasn't gotten worse, and it's gotten a little bit better. Well, St. Andrews is still a good golf course for him because he's so disciplined to keep it out of the bunkers there like he did in 2000. I, I will say this. The man almost died. And the, the, the damage that was done, I don't think any of us are fully can 
appreciate how bad that leg was. They talk about amputation. So for us to see it, I was not shocked at how bad it really was because of what we've heard. But he is so determined. Even with that determination, though, after seeing the leg, as bad as that leg is, Guys, I'm a I'm a Tiger fan. I didn't used to be, but I just don't know, man. I I've 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 seen some ugly legs in my day as far as damage goes to them, but that was bad. And I I think we we might need to get a relationship check at this and just realize that maybe he's not going to be able to win another major. I don't know. I, it would be if he does. If he gets another major. Yeah, he'll go down in the history books. I love Jack Nicholas, but I'm sorry. If he ain't the GOAT, I don't know who is. I mean, yeah, to me, Tiger is the greatest of all time, but even me and dude, I I don't see him ever even contending in a major again. I just don't. And, and to me, you know, after seeing him at Southern Hills and seeing how hard it was for him to just even walk up the hill and everything, maybe it'll get better. But looking at that leg, to me, it seems like something he might have to live with for the rest of his life. T-Dub, do you disagree with me? I, I, I definitely think that it's going to be something he has to deal with his rest of his life. There's absolutely zero doubt about that. I think that will he contend – see, this is the problem, right? Because I got to a point before – around 2017, before he started making his comeback, I said, no, I, I don't think I don't think he's going to win again. I mean, yeah, we can't I just bet against what him. <laughs> You're right. You're right. No, you don't don't <laughs> bet against him for sure. But but again, when you were talking about St. Andrews, I don't know if you guys have ever played it. It is flat. <laughs> it's not a there. The, the only way it's not flat is hitting a bunker. And then, now then it's a then it's not flat. It's a brutally hard golf course if you're in those bunkers. But the rest of the golf course, gentlemen, it's flat. And and he dominated in 2000, okay? So he knows how to play this golf course. He knows how to keep it out of those bunkers. So if there's a place where we could maybe see him contend, possibly there, and it will, it will sure be interesting to watch that because you know he's going to play there because it is so flat. It's easier to walk for him. If there's a tournament that we can get excited about, it's that British Open in a month. Yeah, I tend to agree, but I think that British Open is probably too close to, you know, everything that has happened so far. I, I think that if we see him contend, it'll be here in the next, you know, four four years or so. Just, you know, just because it's too short of a time span from when he withdrew because it was too long of a week on him at the PGA. I know it's flat, and, and even if it is flat and he can walk all 72 holes, it's still going to be hard for him to contend without playing in a PGA Tour event to prepare uh, for a major championship. So we'll see with Tiger. Uh, let's do this. Let's go ahead and take a break. I want to get into some other stuff about this U.S. Open and, and maybe a little bit about the British Open. And we have big shockwaves headed through the Live Series and, and all that. I want to get into a little bit of that at the end of the show as well. You're listening to the 73rd hole right here. Uh, almost said right here on the Sports Animal. By the way, go listen to our uh, show on the Sports Animal. It's every Sunday at 10 a.m. But you're listening to the 73rd hole podcast, the official podcast of Golf Oklahoma. When something the size of a golf ball hits your roof, you need to call McRae Roofing. 
McRae Roofing is Oklahoma's designer roofing service specialist. For years, Jeff McRae and the experienced team at McRae Roofing and Exteriors have served fellow Oklahomans by helping them with their roofing needs. McRae Roofing uses only top quality materials and professional crews to make sure that each job is done right so it will give you the years of service, security, and protection you need from the unpredictable Oklahoma weather. McRae Roofing offers residential and commercial roofing, ventilation services, and custom copper designs. McRae Roofing is dedicated to exceeding the homeowner's expectations. It's not just a roof, it is your home's crowning glory. Call McRae Roofing today at 405-692-4000. That's 405-692-4000. Make sure to also visit their website at mcrayroofing.com. That's M-C-R-A-Y roofing.com. Don't get caught with a leaking roof. Contact McCray Roofing for your free inspection today. Back here on the 73rd Hole Podcast, the official podcast of Golf Oklahoma. And speaking of Golf Oklahoma, go get all of your local golf news at GolfOklahoma.org. Kim McLeod and Chris Swafford doing a great job up there in Tulsa helping everyone get their local golf news on GolfOklahoma.org. Guys, Billy Foster, Matthew Fitzpatrick's caddy, uh, he was one, I mean, he caddied in the 1999 Ryder Cup at Brookline. He caddied for Seve, Darren Clark, Thomas Bjorn, and Lee Westwood, guys. And I think that, you know, Fitzpatrick has a little bit of Westwood in him where, you know, was starting to kind of seem like he was never going to get that major. I know he's younger, but, you know, there's only certain courses where he could win at, and he has that likable personality. So does Billy Foster, and I thought that might have been the best story of Matthew Fitzpatrick winning, maybe other than the fact he won the USAM at the same golf course, right, T-Dub? I mean, I mean, guys, I mean, you hit a spot on, too. I mean, 40 years out there caddying and, and didn't win a major, and just listen, like you mentioned, the guys that he caddied for Sevy, Sergio, Lee Westwood. Sergio and Lee Westwood have been about the, the two biggest players who we're waiting for to ever get a major. Lee Westwood hasn't done it and probably never will. Sergio able to get it done at the Masters 2017. But being on Sevy, Darren Clark's back. He was also in that group. Ended up winning it in the 2011 Open Championship. But also, two guys, he counted for Tiger in the 2005 President's Cup because uh, Stevie Williams was having his kids. So, I mean, Billy Foster's been on some of and literally the best players golf bag of all time. So, and it, I don't know what it was the first time that I can ever remember when, when Zalatoris missed that play on 18, Billy Foster was more excited and emotional than Fitzpatrick was. It was one of the more <laughs> shocking things I could see. It's like Fitzpatrick was over there like, hey, bud, you going to be all right, man? You know, like, hey, you know, kind of, you know, pick it up. We finally did it. And it was, I don't know, it was pretty weird for me when we talked about the players last, or the, uh, the caddies last week in particular with the live and the, you know, open bar and the great treatment that they were getting. So it just really warms my heart to see a caddy who's been through the, the literal grind of 40 years to try to get a major and finally able to get it done. Yeah, great point, because he was excited. And I don't blame him, because where Fitzpatrick figures he's young, he's going to win some more. Uh, Billy kind of knows. I mean, he wins. I, I, I look at this as kind of an interesting tidbit. I had a friend of mine that was a production manager, which is really big people in the country music and he was with Tim McGraw and Faith McGraw one time and he called me and he said I'm going to this new young guy that I think is going to be a superstar and I said you're leaving Tim McGraw and Faith Hill 
to go with some guy that you think is going to be. Well, that guy was uh, Kenny Chesney. It turned wow. out pretty good for him. Okay. <laughs> <Really>? so, <laughs> it was, I would have never pulled that trigger. But Billy Foster went with this Matthew Fitzpatrick thinking that, you know what, I'm going to get to this one last, what I think is a young superstar that has the ability to do this. And I think that's why Foster was so excited that he got to finally pull that flag off that 18th screen. And I'm going to tell you what, he will put that in a frame and he will guard that with his life because I don't know how many more years Billy Foster will caddy because 40 years is a long time to be a tour pro, let alone a caddy. They live a lot tougher life than the tour pro does. So I, at the end of that golf tournament, I really wasn't that fired up to see a European win it. But I was okay because I really was pulling for Billy Fox. And, guys, I'm curious to get your thoughts on, you know, Fitzpatrick going forward. Because, you know, it was starting to seem like, you know, he he's always up there, but he's the bridesmaid, never the bride. Um, but, you know, obviously on Brookline, like a course that he absolutely loves, you know, he got the job done. But on a normal golf course for majors, do you guys see him being kind of one of those elite guys? Or do you think that it has to be the right venue for Matthew Fitzpatrick to win? Well, you know, he's, he's up to, with his win here, he got up to number 10 in the world. So, I definitely think that this is something he may be able to build upon. You know, we, we alluded to it earlier in the show. I mean, it's the first time that he's won in just the United States. So, I mean, that that's just a big enough hump in itself, like we mentioned with Hovland doing all that. But, you know, guys, so here, I'll go back. I'll just read off his uh, his recent uh, major finishes. So, he won this one, finished fifth at the PGA, finished 14th at this year's Masters, 26th the open year before. And then he had made the previous four cuts before that. So, it, you know, it's like he, he before he was kind of struggling in the majors, but it seems like he's gotten to figure something out. And I, I really do think that it's just because of the fact that, you know, he's he's having one of his better uh, better driving years that he's ever had uh, off the tee, really by far his best. He's the, it's the only time that he's ever gained strokes distance-wise off the tee, and he's been able to keep the same amount of accuracy. So, and then you look at it, too, the putting's always been there, chipping, uh, having one of the best chipping years as well. So, while, he's, while Woody is having some of the best form that he's ever had probably by far his best form. I do think that this isn't something that is going to particularly go away because he is only he's only 27 years old. So, I mean, this isn't like he's a 31, 32-year-old. Right. He's younger than, you know, Kepka, Ricky. Um, even probably, I think he's younger than Pete, too. So, I mean, just the, the young age people just think that because he's been out there, he's been playing on the DC World Tour since he was 17 or 18 years old. We, we kind of think that he's a veteran out there, which he is. But age-wise, he's still a young buck, uh, what he only 27 years old. Well, you hit the nail on the head with the driving. He's been working with speed training, even though he made fun of DeChambeau. And he's only been doing the speed training for a little while. And it's it's really shown. It is amazing that he's added the distance he did without losing some of the accuracy. So the driver is big. So for his future, because he's now driving the ball far enough that he can compete, I think he is going to be something to reckon with. And and the other thing that we haven't even talked about with him, you guys saw the way he chips left-hand low. Yep, cross-handed. He chips cross-handed. He was willing to accept the fact that he didn't chip good the other way. He's worked his fanny off with his left-hand low chipping. And nobody really talked about that. 
but it's a it's a wonderful thing for our listeners out there. If you have a, a really have some chipping issues, I know it's going out of the box, but don't be afraid to go left hand low and try it because it stabilizes that left so that you don't have a tendency to do that right hand that tends to either scoop it or jerk, you know, kind of flinch. If you think there's not putting, chipping, and driving hips, everybody's got a yip somewhere in their game that they have to work through. And he did it. He chipped the ball. He didn't didn't get to see it much because he had 17 greens. (laughs) (laughs) This earlier in the week, he had some really good chips, guys, with that left hand low. So, I think he's the kind of guy, from a statistic standpoint, we know he's nuts about doing that. He's smart enough to figure out some way, somehow, to get the golf ball in the hole as quickly as he can. That's why I think, don't be surprised if we see him win another major. I would be shocked if we don't. Yeah. Real, 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 real quick, say before you go on, I just want to ask Woody this question, because I noticed this about his left-hand load I thought was interesting was, like he, he, his golf swing. He has one of the strongest left hand grips you'll ever see uh, from a PJ Tour player. But he even keeps that strong left hand whenever he grips it on the bottom. It's almost like you can see the full emblem of the glove. You can see almost every single knuckle when he grips it. So isn't that kind of a unique, even way to go cross handed, Woody? Not just bottom low, but having that strong of a left hand. Well, keep in mind if if you want to get lost on the golf club, if you if you put your normal grip, what do we do with our right hand? We put our right hand way over which will keep the face of the club open through the golf ball, which helps to create bounce, okay? So when you go cross-handed, it's just the opposite. We always talk about a game of golf as a game of opposites, and that's why it's so hard for people to learn this game. You, you would think it would be the other way, that he would put the left hand way the other way. Well, if he does, that's strengthening it. So when he puts the left hand low and then way over where you see the knuckles, he's adding loft to the golf club, which loft is your friend in golf. Always remember that. Getting the ball airborne is not a bad thing, okay? That's big in golf. That's why when we teach golf, we try to teach people, hey, you need to keep loft on the golf club. It's your friend. The more altitude the ball has, the better chance you have of becoming good with it. But that was a great question, T-Dub. But that's why he moves that left hand like that. It gets the club face open again. Yeah, and kind of to go off what T-Dub was saying about the driving, in 2018 and 19, his club head speed was 112.8 miles per hour, and his par 5 scoring rank was tied for 75th on the PGA Tour. In 2021-2022, his club head speed is 116.5 miles per hour, and he was tied for 17th headed into this week. And then I'm sure it only got better after this week. And then another stat about the driving is, is he has improved strokes gained off the tee every single year. In 2016, he was losing .15 off the tee. In 2022, he's gaining .78 strokes gained off the tee, which is really one of the better drivers on the PGA Tour. Um, guys, to me, I think that this guy can win anywhere, and I and I think that uh, it's a little unfair to him uh, that we kind of do call him Mr. Skill, and he has to win at certain venues. From what I saw from him this week, that ball striking performance, 17 greens in a, in a do-or-die situation on Sunday – 
Matthew Fitzpatrick really showed me something. And even on that front nine, he showed me guts as well to kind of stay with Scotty Scheffler on that front nine uh, and keep, you know, this tournament at bay. And then to close it off the way he did with the bunker shot uh, on 18, to me, I mean, was just a phenomenal performance, right, T-Dub? Well, I I think that, you know, for our OG listeners who have been with us from day one, they'll they'll know that the very first uh, Taguchi interview we had with him and Kelsey Klein one of the things that they alluded to was Kelsey told Taylor, you know, back in the day, you need you need a golf game that travels. And uh, what he means by that is you need to be able to, you know, we have guys out here, you know, at any golf course, they can go out and shoot even par or under par at, at, at their home course. They go play another good course, they shoot 85 or something like that. So, you know, you need a game that's able to move around. And most PJ Tour pros do have that, but it's still even to a higher extent. But the elite players, and I think that you hit the nail on the head, Sam, when it comes to the, uh, the par five scoring, because, when you're, uh, he's a little bit above middle of the pack, but also probably just because, you know, a lot of people don't realize on par five, it's more important to really hit the fairway, even as opposed to distance. But if you gain a lot of distance and you're missing the fairways, you're not going to be that good a par five score. But the fact that he's able to do both of them, getting a, a, up to the top 20 in the par five scoring, that goes to show that, because his iron play is going to always be there, in my opinion. So, I mean, you hit 17 greens, you can do that anywhere you want. So, I absolutely agree that he's, this distance has been able to transform it to where now he's not one of those guys to where you get up on a long golf course, like maybe even the Torrey Pines or something, and you could throw out half the field of the guys because they don't hit it far enough. Well, Fitzpatrick's not in that group anymore. Yeah, and to me, it's just as impressive as what like guys like a DeChambeau did, gaining more distance because he get, he kept all the accuracy he had uh, when he was only swinging like 112 miles per hour, Woody. How did he do it? Well, it, it's called practice, but to... Uh, to generate four more miles an hour, almost five more miles an hour, that doesn't sound like a lot, but boy, that's a lot of speed to gain. Uh, and and yet keep the club face that stable. And, I, you know, that's one of those times you wish you could be a mouse when they're out there practicing he and his coach, when they're doing the speed training with this fitted club and getting those hard, hard swings one more after the other. And then all of a sudden you get that light feeling driver. What you tend to do is lose where that face of the club is. He hasn't done that. So we're talking about a young man that is willing to pay the price to do whatever he has to do to get better. Well, it came in a big way just this last Sunday, just good old Father's Day. He doesn't, he's not a father yet, but he, he'll remember that day for a long time. Yeah, and he's super dedicated. Just last week, guys, he had one of his buddies' bachelor parties that he had said, you know, you guys can use my house, but I'm not going to party with you guys. I'll have dinner with you, but I'm going to be practicing the whole time. How about the uh, kind of uh, discipline to have a bachelor party at your house last week uh, and then go ahead and win the U.S. Open the week after T-Dub? That, that is a different kind of discipline to me. Uh, that, that, that goes to show why, why he's hoisting the U.S. Open trophy because majority of us guys that we would not be turning that down because you know those bachelor parties can be can be a lot of fun sometimes a little bit of more too fun so definitely shows the discipline there that that's the kind of stuff you need to be a world-class athlete you know the tom brady's with his diet and all that stuff and the work ethic it's just something that's in the blood and it's clear that fitzpatrick has that and you know he's also notorious for you know literally plotting every single shot that he hits and you know having a spreadsheet and figuring out all that stuff and that's the kind of stuff that you, we talk about things you can't teach to people. You can't teach that to people because it's, that's a type of dedication and a work ethic that you you just can't you can't go manufacture that in a, in a shop 
and sell that to someone. So that's just another layer to this this pie of I think Matthew Fitzpatrick is going to be a world beater for some time, Woody, and, and I don't think he's going anywhere. But, yeah, the discipline for the bachelor party is, is next-level stuff. Well, and, of course, he's still single. Uh, life will change for him. But I think that any time that somebody comes into his life, they better get used to how he does things because the longer you're single, the more stuck in your ways you become and the more difficult it becomes to find somebody that'll literally put up with what he is so focused on doing. So we, you know, if we had a crystal ball, wouldn't it be fun guys? You know how rich we'd be if we could look at our crystal ball and tell you who's going to do what over the next few years. Cause we get on DraftKings and make killing. Uh, <laughs> but I think, when you look at all the young players we have, and I think of young on the PGA Tour, 32 and younger, there is a ton of them. And they are good. And they are dedicated. And they're setting goals that they're going to go and try to catch Tiger if they can, let alone Jack. I don't know if we'll see it. I won't see it in my lifetime. You guys might. But he's just another one that we put into that kennel of all these pit bulls. And there's a bunch of them. And they're all nasty. They all want to win, and they want to win badly. So we'll just see who can keep that drive the longest. Tiger did it. Jack did it. There's been very few that can just keep that drive. Let's see if he's won. We don't know. And guys, I want to ask you this question because I think this week was a pretty good barometer on this question. Is he the best European golfer right now, even ahead of Rory McIlroy and John Rahm? Data Golf says he's third behind McIlroy and Rahm, but to me, he's right up there with those guys right now. Um, I, I'm not going to put him ahead of Rory. Um, the reason I'm not is because, you know, we're kind of looking at the analytics there and tell this. Rory gained 2.46 strokes putting this week. That is just almost unheard of. And you look at you look at how he is analytically over the year. Um, Rory is 21st out of every single player on tour in strokes game putting. So that, he's ahead of guys like Scotty Scheffler and uh, Justin Thomas and those guys. So Patrick Cantley is ahead of all of it. So, and, and we mentioned what he did with his wedge game last week. So I, I think I would definitely put Rory as, as number one. And I, I will say that John Rahm is more talented than Fitzpatrick is. 100%. But, but when you talk about what's in between the ears and like Woody was just saying, the work ethic and how long it'll take, I don't want to be prisoner of the moment because they're both the last two U.S. Open winners and they both only have one major now. But I might think Fitzpatrick might end up having a little bit, um, maybe not overall PGA Tour wins because he played so much more in Europe or whatever. But when we get done at the end of their career, we add up the majors and all that. Probably wouldn't shot me if Fitzpatrick ended up with three and Rom had two or only one or something like that. Well, and just to go yeah. devil's advocate at, real quick, Woody, against T-Dub's point about Mick McElroy, I mean, the last eight years, Rom and Fitzpatrick both have more majors than uh, McElroy does, Woody. <laughs> well, yeah, a good point. I still think you got to put Rory ahead of him. I think that uh, Rory's been doing a lot of work with Brad Faxon. Brad Faxon and I played some golf together in our day. Brad Faxon was one of those guys like Ben Crenshaw that when I watched him cut, it was pretty special. So Rory is learning to, I think what Faxon teaches is to be more, oh, just active, just let it happen. 
don't be so doggone analytical. Don't think so much. He's really done a great job with Rory as far as getting him to learn how to keep his speed better. No matter what tournament, his speed control has gotten so much better than what it used to be. And he's gotten to where those little putts, sometimes where a little bit of his Achilles heel, where he's rock solid, steady, and he's letting that putter release. You know what I mean? He is mm-hmm. letting that putter release. And that's pretty doggone cool. And guys, let's talk about that golf tournament coming up later this summer. And by that golf tournament, it's not the British Open. We'll get to that in a second. But I'm talking about the NALZ golf tournament on August 29th at Oak Tree Country Club. Uh, go support Alzheimer's. Obviously, uh, I know that a couple people on this show have had uh, family members with Alzheimer's, and, and we're happy to partner uh, with Tyler Marks and help him put on this golf tournament. If you want to play, there's going to be some great prizes. Uh, you can call 405-205-0662. 405-205-0662. Give Tyler Marks a call and get your spot in the end ALZ golf tournament um, on August 29th. Uh, but guys, let's talk about the British Open. Who are your guys' early favorites for St. Andrews? Uh, there's not many golf courses with more history than Brookline, but uh, definitely St. Andrews is the one. Um, I'm leaning towards Rory McIlroy uh, for the British Open, guys. I don't know about you. Well, you, you just try to talk me into fading Rory over playing, Fitzpatrick. So I was I'm playing not- devil's advocate, T-Dub. It's called radio. Ah, uh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Well, it's called podcasting, Sam. You got to make get your platform right here, buddy. So, get your platform right. We got we don't have near as many rules as that damn radio does. So thank God. Uh, you know, give me. Go ahead and give me Rory as well. You know, just just you know to play. I don't know, Angels Advocate or whatever you want to call it. Um, yeah, get, give me Rory up to number two in the world. Um, I'm gonna go ahead and ride with that. But also too. Scotty Scheffler, man, I mean, that's just, that guy's just a world-beater, dude. Uh, it's, yes, it's, he is. I, I keep waiting, and I expect him to play bad golf at some point. And the only time he's played bad golf was at the uh, the uh, PJ Championship at Southern Hills. And I think a lot of that had to do with the group that he was in, in all honesty, because he's playing with Rom, the biggest crybaby on the PGA Tour. And uh, he was also playing with Morikawa, who apparently was trying to figure out if he's going to hit a draw or a fade that day. So <laughs> I, I definitely – I'm probably going to go with, with those guys. You know, if I'm looking down the list, uh, of, of players and you know one thing i want to add to this element guys is that we've got what four or five weeks before the open championship so if we have any more live news come out about players and all that stuff i mean i think that's going to change this a little bit he's already out there on the live but louis Ustase in 23rd in the world he missed the cut this week just open, but he won there in um in 2010 by five or six strokes, strokes whatever it was and then lost in the playoff in 2015 to zach johnson and that uh, mark leishman was in that playoff as well so technically He's tied for first, or he's either one or tied for first the two times he's played there. So as long as he's not too busy working on his farm, Woody, and counting his million-dollar checks that he's just gotten from the Saudis, I, I kind of like Louis chances as kind of a dark horse, maybe someone that people aren't really thinking about too much. Yeah, good point. I, I just I got a feeling with this live. I think I think Louis just basically said, you know what, I'm going to go make millions at this deal, and I'm going to stay on my farm. But you remember earlier, guys, when I was talking about being stupid, I'm not going to be stupid. I'm going with Will Zalatoris. <laughs> yeah. Told you guys. I was thinking, uh, you know, and I said this to you all earlier in this broadcast. The the guy that keeps it out of the bunkers will win, and that sounds easy, but boy, it takes unbelievable discipline on this golf course. 
to position the golf ball because this golf ball will feed to these bunkers. And you might think you've hit a pretty good shot, and all of a sudden it just gets rolling on this hard pan depending on what the weather conditions are. If it's dry, it becomes really, really difficult how to position the golf ball around this golf course. And I'm not just talking greenside bunkers. I'm talking fairway bunkers. I'm talking any place they have dug a hole and they put what they consider sand, which isn't much, into one of these holes. You knock it in there, the whole world changes. It's a different game totally. So Valatoris is going to be my pre-tournament favorite. You got a guy with like Rory. I don't know. You're right. It's pretty hard to go against him. Oh, this Fitzpatrick, I, once again, guys, we're sitting around and we're thinking, who can win? Well, just I'm thinking about getting a dart board and putting these guys' names on it and just throwing a dart. <laughs> yeah, I mean, going along with Rory and Rom, I also like guys, you know, kind of like Scheffler. That's an obvious pick. But I like guys at the British Open um, who aren't necessarily the wor- or the best drivers of the golf ball but have contended, guys like Cam Smith. Um, there, there's certain other guys that I, I might put on that list ahead of Will Zalatoris just because – I, I don't see him putting well on slow greens. I don't think he's ever really putted well on slower greens, and so he'd have to prove that to me before I would pick him at a British Open. I think he's a he's going to win a U.S. Open before any other major. Um, but guys, let's uh let's talk about the live. You mentioned the live, and and I think that some shock waves are going to happen here in the next week or two on the live. We're hearing some rumors. I can't say any names yet, uh, but I think a few more guys, maybe even uh, the champion from this week could go over there here in the next few weeks? I mean, it's, it, it's just the, the, the snowball effect, guys. It's just, it started down the mountain, and what happens when the ball goes, it collects more snow, more momentum, and it just keeps going, and that's, that's where we're at right now, guys. I mean, it's just, it keeps on coming, keeps on coming, and it's not going to stop. It's just, we've been preaching it for, for months now, and, and really, especially these last couple of weeks of, well, who's it going to be? What's going to be the ramifications from this? What are the majors going to do all this? And you know, the groundwork's finally starting to get laid. We're going to have a, a lot of stuff to go on with lawsuits and all that. But it's it's pretty shocking, guys. And the news of, you know, last week Dustin Johnson trying to apply for uh, DP World Tour membership. And it seems like with them, they don't have as strict of uh, their player restrictions because unlike the PGA Tour, they have been the monopoly for 60 years. So it, it's been it's been pretty telling. And I just want to mention this real quick to the people who are talking about tradition and all this stuff. And, and that's one of the things that we need to focus on. Do you guys realize that the British Am was this week? Yeah, and a 17-year-old won it. from A 17-year-old won, yeah. Mm-hmm. And how much did people talk about that tournament this week, especially on the Golf Channel? Zero. I didn't I saw, I saw. didn't see anything. I, I watched it on them um, before I, I see it off on Saturday because um, it was on YouTube. So I, I watched it there. But that used to be one of the four major championships. That, that was one of the four majors that Bobby Jones won when he won the Grand Slam in 1930. And no one talks about it. No one talks about it. No one cares. So it's like if you want to talk about tradition that much, Woody, you either need to go all the way back and respect every tradition golf has, or you need to get with the new times and try to evolve. I don't know. You can't get somewhere in the middle with me. You just can't. Well, and that's how much our world is changing. And, and what we've been talking, you know, texting back and forth, talking about this, that we're getting ready to see could be the biggest game changer ever. If the DP Tour does not stay online with the PGA Tour, let's just play devil's advocate here. 
let's say the DP tour says, you know what? Now nah, we're not going to do that to our players. Not only that, we're going to kind of get in bed with these guys. And now all of a sudden, the DP tour and this Saudi tour tend to live, get together for some unknown reason other than the fact that that commissioner don't trust him. I told you guys this last week, do not trust this guy. If he pulls that off and then they become joined up and they're playing for $4 million a week, uh-oh, now, now the PGA Tour, as we know it, guys, it, it could be a corn fairy before you blink. Yeah. It really could. I mean, I've it could had, get so ugly. Exactly. I've had PGA Tour players text me and say, I mean, a PGA Tour card could be a Corn Ferry card here in the next two years. That's coming from a PGA Tour player, guys, because if the DP it. World Tour does partner with them, they're going to have official World Golf ranking points and they're going to be playing for more money. It's a no brainer. And I thought Greg Norman brought up a great point when he said, why does the PGA Tour have 23 sponsors doing 40 plus billion dollars of business with Saudi Arabia? Why is it okay for the sponsors? Will Monahan go to each and every one of those 23 companies and suspend and ban them too and all the PGA Tour talks about and all the Golf Channel by the way live from was unwatchable this week calling it that other tour and making Francis we Mets win back in 1913 about the live and how they used to play for the love of the game it was a propaganda machine for the PGA Tour we're not hearing it out of any media outlets because the golf writers hate it and obviously you know if, if you don't work for the golf channel you probably have worked for the golf channel or want to work for the golf channel and those they don't want to offend the golf channel who has the pga tour uh, tv contract and so to me you're not going to hear any bad things coming i mean any good things coming from the live only hear bad things coming from the golf channel about the live and guys the Live has had a great month, and, and I think it's gaining more and more traction. Uh, and just from what I've heard over this past week, we're going to have you know two or three more guys out of the top 30 go over there here in the next couple weeks. Um, it, you're exactly right, Sam. And I just want to add on to what you said. You know, it would be pretty funny if Colby was here, you know, since he does work I know, for the golf channel. To talk, I, I mentioned this. I, and I don't, want to, I don't want it to come off like I'm bashing Colby without him being there. I would say it straight to his face. I, I just think that, you know, I, I'm not trying to be disrespectful. I, I just don't ever hear the other side of the argument anywhere other than here. Well, and, and I'll say this. I completely agree. I, I said Colby's face, and I said it to his face a hundred times, and, I, and I'll continue to do it. And I just think that I mentioned this with, with the U.S. Open reporters asking Mike Warren constantly about the live and not focus on the tournament. They diluted from the tournament. It was disrespectful, and the golf channel did the exact same this week. In particular, Brandon Chambly. It was utterly ridiculous how many comments that they, like you said, they're vaguely to it. Then they just mentioned, God dang, you'll play a drinking game. Just drink anytime time says the word atrocity. Because <laughs> you will get so drunk. So <laughs> it's it, it, utterly ridiculous how much they talk about it. It's dumb. It, it diluted from the U.S. Open, one of the best, one of the majors. Uh, some people consider it the best major. Uh, I've heard a lot of, of, I remember Chris Goderup, whenever he uh, got through sectional qualifying, he said that if any major he wanted to win, he wanted to win the U.S. Open because that's where he's from, the United States. Some people would rather win the U.S. Open more than the Masters. I'm not one of those people, but a lot of people are like that. So you diluted from one of the biggest tournaments, probably the second biggest tournament, in my opinion, in this country. And you just completely washed it out because you wanted to talk about how corrupt the Saudi was. It was utterly despicable. And 
you know, if Shambly mentioned he wanted to puke when he heard all these players going over there, it made me want to puke listening to him constantly bitch about it. And, and Woody, one, well, one more point, real quick, before you go. I'm sick and tired of everyone saying, you know, you're gonna. The only thing you're gonna do is take money out of the charity's pockets. That's not true. The PGA Tour no. has quietly millions and hundreds of millions of dollars oh, oh. sitting behind the scenes that they don't give to charities. Come on. No, no, no. Yeah. On that point, Sam, I have to mention this. The PGA Tour's charitable contributions out of their annual revenue, going back to 2018, the annual revenue, they give 3%, a whopping 3% of what they make to charity. And remember, the PGA Tour is a nonprofit organization, and they give back 3%. And I just want to point this out as well. The, the, the $3 billion that the PGA Tour tries to claim that for charity, that what that is is the majority of that is raised by the, the charities that host that are around the tournaments, right? So an example would be like it, it, when they have the, uh, the uh, waste management out at, uh, out in Phoenix, the, uh, the Thunderbirds is a big charity out there. So they raise a lot of money for that time around the tournament. So the local charities are the ones that raise that money and the PJ tour takes credit for it. Well, what the tour doesn't realize is that if you have some sort of platform and you get the best players in the world there, you can be able to raise money no matter what you do. So, Brandel just made it seem like that you were able that the PJ Tour was going to take the the charity money and give it to these players for guaranteed contracts, and the tour was ever going to get to that point. And, and they they literally couldn't do that because every dollar, almost every charitable dollar they raise is at their tournament from local charities. So what are they going to do? Take money from the local charities and give it to the PJ Tour players? Uh, I believe that's called fraud or something like that. So I don't think that's going to happen, Woody. Brandel Stanley literally went on the golf channel and blatantly lied to everyone that was listening. Well, again, we go back to guys the the money, and if you work for the golf channel or you work for the PGA Tour, if this happens and it goes south for the PGA Tour, these guys don't have a job. Okay, <laughs> they aren't making a living anymore. And if Greg Norman is a commissioner, <laughs> oh my. There's a lot of these guys that have said pretty ugly things. I can promise you they won't have a job, okay? So the PGA Tour has had such a monopoly for so long that people have just become, I guess, okay with it. But when you start spouting those numbers you just spouted, T-Dub, most people don't know these things. And so... As long as all your golf writers and everybody's still against this live, you're not going to hear these things. But what happens when a dam breaks? It might start with a pinhole, and then it becomes bad news. It's a flood. And I truly believe before this year's over, guys, we're going to see an all-out flood. That dam is going to break. There's too much showing me of the lying and all the things that are hidden and everything that's going on. That dam's breaking, so get ready. It's nothing new. We're not, I don't think we're, we're spouting off something that is going to be unbelievable by any stretch of the sense. I think it's going to happen. I truly do. And, guys, I think the point that just pisses me off the most about the whole situation, whether it be the PGA Tour or the Golf Channel, is – they always just use the politics of as an excuse in this whole situation to me. And, and, it, and it's like they've done so many, 
you know, things in the past working with Saudi Arabia. And, and so to me, I think that, you know, you're going to start seeing questions asked by PGA Tour members. Like, for instance, if a, if a Champions Tour player on the PGA Tour is banned, it, people don't know that. The Champions Tour is under the PGA Tour. So is the Canadian Tour and PGA Tour Latin America and all that stuff. And the Corn Ferry Tour, all of it. And so say a, a Champions Tour player wants to go, you know, play in this live event, but he's banned from doing that, but there's no P, there's no Champions Tour event that week, and he can't go play in the PGA tournament that week. How are you going to ban someone for trying to make money? That's what a monopoly is called. What, what I'm saying is they won't be able to get in the PGA Tour event, but they also won't be able to go make money on the live. You're not allowed to do that to people, right? I think that, and I think the biggest thing that people need to realize about this, at least from my perspective, is uh, do I just absolutely love the Live Tour and think that it's great? No. But I, I just, I'm so fed up with how the PGA Tour has handled this situation. So, you know, people, you know, even our, our boy Gideon Hamilton on, on Sports Channel called us, you know, the Saudi lovers or, or whatever he said. And that's <laughs> he not called the case. Us it's, it's the a- Bonesaw Brigade. I, and and the, like I said, okay, yeah, we're exactly. the three musketeers <laughs> against monopolies, Gideon. That's exactly what that's exactly what I thought. Exactly what I thought because it's, I don't care. It's not it's not the fact that it's a Saudi Arabia. I don't look at it from that perspective. I look at it from the way the PGA Tour, like you said, is trying to monopolize and control these players and tell them what they can and can't do because they're scared of competition. And that's the main thing I'm against is because because that and I completely agree that the floodgates are opening and I think that the way that the tour has handled this has pissed a lot of players off. So they're trying to make a statement saying that they're doing it for their brands. You know, obviously. Rory and JT are the ones standing most against and there'll be some players, you know, Rom's kind of on there too, but, you know, I, and I wouldn't expect any of them to actually go over to the live, but I like to saw Dustin Johnson and Bryson, you know, just because you come out and make a commitment doesn't mean it's true, so I don't know what, I completely agree, I think that this is just kind of the start of it, and, and until we get some sort of ramification on, on the lawsuit, it's, it's very tough, and you know, one thing, guys, I want to ask you, and I'm sure none of us know this, but I got to thinking about this the other day, it's Okay, so we, we keep talking about this lawsuit, right, that's, that's always coming. Is that going to be in the United States court, or is that going to be like a world court? Because it's, I, I don't know where that jurisdiction takes place. Yeah, I don't know. Well, I think it'll have to be in the United States because the PGA Tour is based in home. They're going to have to sue the PGA Tour, Tour the, they will sue. Uh, now, I can imagine that Greg Norman doesn't have a problem paying all the lawyer fees for him, okay? Because right. somebody's going to. I bet there's a lawyer in Saudi Arabia. I just got a feeling there is. So uh, I think when all this is said and done, we are three guys that I don't know that we're uh, pro-live as much as we're anti how the PGA Tour has just monopolized That's the exactly game. Right. That's exactly right. And just thought right. that they could do that for their whole life, that nothing was going to change. The media that we know is out there, whether it's – I still see the president of the United States getting on the television and telling me we're all okay. This oh, this $6 a gallon gasoline, this and this and this. Hey, we're doing good. Well, no, we're not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was told the economy is the best it's been in 80 years. With. Yeah, it's, it's, it, we're not doing good. And I don't care how many media – outlets tell me I'm doing good when I go fill my truck up or I go to the grocery store or I go buy plywood it doesn't we're not doing good well you know what that's what we've got now we're, they're in that 
full mode. This this tells you guys how scary this is for the PGA Tour. They're in a full mode of trying to whitewash this and bash it and do everything they can. That's why they're willing to do it during a U.S. Open. Still talk about it. They're panicking. Let me tell you something. They're they're getting chased right now, and this pit bull that's chasing them has got some big jaws, and they're 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 choking. They're they are worried. They are worried. That's why this is being done this way. Bash, 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 bash. It'll go away. Yeah, maybe not. And another thing that bothers me about it, T Dub, is that I'm literally getting texts from PGA Tour players saying you know, different things about the whole situation that you don't hear on the Golf Channel. It's like the Golf Channel is not, you know, relying on any sources. They're just going based off what their opinion is, right? Well, they, what they're doing is they're going off of the uh, messages that the that tour wants them to say. And what's funny is that Jay Monahan he come out and say that, you know, the PGA, the rules are written for the players by the players, or by the players for the players, is what he said. Well, uh, like you said, I, I'm, I'm the same way. You know, obviously you're you're more in the inner circle than I am, but you know the 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 PJ Tour pros are saying something completely different. And so it's you know, are you going to listen to the players? Or are you going to listen to a monopolized organization? I don't know, Woody. For anyone with any type of common sense, it seems pretty simple to me. Well, the the players have they they're the one with the hammer. Yep. This is what you guys got to understand. They're the one with the hammer. Jay Monahan might act like he's got a hammer. And he's got a fly swatter. These guys have got a sledgehammer, okay? And at any time, all it takes is these top players in the world to swing their sledge, and they're going to smash not only Jay Monahan but the PGA Tour. If that, if they get angry enough or if they see enough of this whitewashing and all this stuff that they're seeing, Boys, at any time, those guys can make one phone call. And like we said, if the DP tour says, yeah, you're more than welcome to come to our tour. You can be a European member. Just uh, Dustin Johnson, that went kind of under the radar, guys. That was huge. If you think David Winkle, his, his uh, agent, hasn't been talking to that DP commissioner, and if you think they haven't had conversations, Dustin's the first one to do it, isn't he? He's yep. the first one to apply for that tour, okay? And those guys that have dumped the PGA Tour or said, I'm not going to be a member anymore, they got every right to go and see if they can get on the European Tour. So that was big, and people didn't even realize it. That means conversations are going on. And so, again... Uh, we're not getting all the stories we need to get because all we're going to get is, oh, hey, Colin Marcala decided he was going over there or Brooks Kepka or somebody that hasn't come out like Rory and, and, and JT and those guys. Say, no, 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 no way. Well, let me tell you something. You think JT and Rory are going to play on the Corn Ferry Tour? <laughs> <laughs> if they, if they keep right their head, they might be at some point. <laughs> well, you know what? I'm sorry, guys. It, it, it went Everything gets put out on the table. And, well, you guys are loyal to the PGA. We just don't really have any tournaments for you that are any big money. DP gets in bed with Saudi or the Live, and they're playing for $4 million a week and getting world ranking points. Uh, JT, you can talk all you want. So can you, Rory. But guess what you're going to do? 
you're going to bolt. And when we see that, guys, our podcast is going to have a whole different look to it. Huge look and change. It really oh, will. Oh, no doubt. And, and, and you know, real, real quick, Sam, I, I want to make this point because I, heard, I kept hearing on the Golf Channel all week, you know, when they kept talking about the stupid live, they kept saying the two people in the in the world of golf who have the most power, <clears throat> excuse me, are Jay Monahan and Fred Rizzo. Well, the Jay Monahan was a complete – he has no power at all. It's like what he said. It's the players that have the power. But Fred Ridley does have some power. But I want to point out one of the reasons why I don't think Augusta is going to make quite a stand on this. So, I just went back and did a little bit of math, guys. So, looking at the past winners, of like, like Augusta's claim to fame and what the Masters really cherished is more than anything, it seems like, is their past champions and want to take care of them. Well, go back and look on it, guys. From 2004 to now, and obviously this isn't that many people could still won three times, but when you include Angel Cabrera, who's in an Argentinian jail, <laughs> if you banned the, the live players, you would ban Phil Mickelson, you'd ban Charles Schwartzel, you'd ban uh, Sergio Garcia, Patrick Reed, and Dustin Johnson. That, that, that's oh. eight, eight of the last of the past Masters champions since 2004. So within the last 20 years, you would ban eight of your past winners to come play your tournament? I, I don't think there's a chance in hell that that happens. So, I just I think that when I went back and did a little bit of research on that, I said, is Augusta really going to stick their foot down on, on, on this deal? Because I understand they would want to come out and try to play the moral high ground because they've been notorious for having such really shitty morals over the last the, since their institution was built up, being in the heart of Georgia and the slavery and all that stuff. So I, I just, but whenever they want to take care of their past players, they would want to try to make a statement. But you can't, I just don't see a way saying that they could ban eight of their past champions, or I guess seven, you can take Angle out, out of there. But I just don't see any way that happens to me. No, that's a great point, T-Dub. And I don't think that the Masters would ever want to be second fiddle to tournaments like the U.S. Open or the British Open either. You know what I mean? If, if they had a Absolutely. weaker field, right? And so I, I totally agree with that point. We can talk about it for hours on end, but we will be back on Wednesday. Well, I won't hey, be Sam, back Sam, on Wednesday. Our, Sam, don't forget our new segment. We got a new segment. Oh, we do have a new segment. T-Dub, tell us what was in the bag this week at the, at the uh, U.S. Open. So, so what we're going to start doing, guys, is I thought this was pretty cool because I've had a lot of people talk to me about equipment lately and that kind of thing. You know, especially with golf industry booming, like you have people are going out buying new clubs. So I think it'd be interesting to see, you know, what the, the winner this week or winner of each tournament will do this over, for each recap show. Go over what, what clubs, not just what clubs, but each shaft that the, uh, that the players use as well. So we're going to go through Matthew Fitzpatrick's bag uh, right now. He was using a Titleist TSI 3 driver. Uh, nine degrees aloft with a Mitsubishi Kenshi shaft in it, uh, orange shaft, which is Mitsubishi and Fujikura are the two most popular driver shafts out there. So it was interesting to see him using a, a Titleist driver, though, because he was using ping, a Ping 3-wood and a Ping 7-wood. Um, you know, 7-woods have become a pretty common trend lately. A lot of guys using a 21, 22. Even Dustin Johnson had a 24-degree 9-wood last week in his bag, and he has the same Mitsubishi shaft. And as well, it's the Ping 425 Max 3-wood and the Ping uh, D410 7-wood is what he used. So then he had um, Ping S55 Iron. Um, he had four, uh, he had a 4-3 pitching wedge in that with just the uh, standard, not standard Ping shaft, but uh, the type of iron shaft that Ping uses. Then he had uh, bulky wedges in his bag, guys. I thought this was interesting because Woody was talking earlier about the uh, around the tip shots and not being able to use the bounce. He had eight degrees of bounce in his gap wedge, his sand wedge, and his lob wedge, which I think usually you don't see the same bounce in every single club like that going through, at least not, uh, you know, some people try to do uh, maybe high bounce in one wedge, lower bounce in another. So I thought that was interesting. 
Then he had a, a bet Narnie putter, obviously a tour department type putter. Kind of looks like the old Yes putters with the C grooves on it, if you guys have ever played those. And he used a Pro V1X ball. So, I don't know, guys. I think this is going to be a pretty cool thing going forward, just kind of going over all these clubs and people can, if they're wanting to get some new clubs, they can go check them out and see, well, hey, they'll know, hey, Matthew Fitzpatrick used this to win the U.S. Open. I might as well use it too. So I think it's going to be a new interesting segment. Hopefully we'll keep it rolling going forward. Absolutely great stuff, T-Dub. You guys will be back on Wednesday to preview the Travelers. I will be down in Dallas with my boy, Jordan Boyer, uh, for, speaking of Matthew Fitzpatrick, a, uh, a little bachelor party, guys. So I will be gone the rest of this week. So uh, hold it down for me, huh? Uh, what's the plan for the bachelor party, Sam? Undisclosed. So uh, continue to follow <laughs> the 73rd hole on Twitter and Instagram at the 73rd hole on Twitter at wow. 73rd hole on Instagram. All right, everybody, have a great week. Uh, I'll see you when I see you.